Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Paige Turner to our show. Dr. Turner is the Dean of the College of Communication, Information, and Media at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. Hi, Paige. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Dave, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be able to talk with you. Tell me about Ball State University and why students select your institution and also your college. So Ball State is some, a place that we talk about as being the right size in the right place and having the type of commitment to our students that you don't often find in a university of 20,000 students. We have a class ratio of 14 to one, but more important, Dave, is the way in which our faculty engage with our students from day one. We believe students should have hands-on immersive learning experiences from the minute that they get to our campus. So within our college, we talk about the fact that we put our students out into the community to have an impact in their first semester. We also put equipment in the hands of our students from their first semester. We don't believe you should wait until your junior or senior year. We want you engaged immediately. So they students will say they chose Ball State because it was the right size for them. Oh, neat. Yeah. Uh, is there anything new at, at your college? Oh, my goodness. I, I, th I think we would have to be here for the next two hours if I went through everything that's new in our college. So our college was established in 1996. We brought together uh, three units, uh, Department of Journalism, Department of Telecommunications and Communication Studies, and then later also added our Center for Information and Communication Sciences as well. So when we were formed, we were taking a look at how do we help our students, our communities take information and translate it into meaning. And you know, Dave, that you can get information immediately. You can Google this podcast and get facts and data. You can pick up your phone. But we live in a society that is desperate for meaning. So our college helps our students take information and put it into context to give it meaning. What does it mean that we have 20,000 students at Ball State? What does it mean that we're seeing changes in the demographics of students going to college? That's the important thing that we want to get at in our college. So when we were formed in 1996, we started that work. And in the past four years, we have really accelerated the base that we were given. So we changed to the names of our departments. The Department of Telecommunications is now the Department of Media, because as you know, with artificial intelligence, if you put in telecommunications in a search engine on a resume, you're probably gonna get picked up for a phone company job. So it wasn't giving our students the access and recognition that they deserve. So we've changed that to the Department of Media. Our Department of Journalism is a much more robust program than just journalism and includes strategic communication, which includes advertising and public relations. It also has our emerging media design and development program that has user interface, design thinking, cross-platform media development as well. So they have been changed to the School of Journalism and Strategic Communication to recognize the full array of what they do. 
our Center for Information and Communication Sciences, which was just uh, ranked 19th in the nation in that area, and number one by the Wall Street Journal for the debt to income ratio. We've now brought over computer information technology, which is an undergraduate degree component and career and voca vocational training and education, which helps prepare high school professionals as well in that area. So in all of that, we've also added some new majors and areas of study, applied cybersecurity. You know, cybersecurity right now is an area that touches every element of our organizations. In addition, adding um, basic media technology education across the college. So you're, you're sitting here in front of a mic and your background may be, you don't know anything about how to plug that mic in, what to do if it shorts out or how to connect it to the, the cloud. We think everybody's gonna need that basic information because we have people doing just what you're doing. One person putting on a program or one person who's the journalist in the field. So we brought that on as well. We have the number two program for student awards in sports production, our sports link program. And we've now brought on a sister program in esports which is helping students put production for esports, which is a new multi-billion dollar industry that's going to need people both in our college, in the business college, in the College of Health and Kinesiology as well. So those are some of the areas that we've been doing. Um, in addition, we've added on some new elements for student success support as well. And we've expanded some of our facilities. We've added uh, classes in drone technology mm -hmm. certification so that students can get certified by the FAA for drones. But yeah, that's just a few of them. Wow, that's that, that's really exciting. And you know, the other thing I thought of is when you talked about uh, having having data make some make meaning, mm -hmm. I bet there's a lot of people who want you to explain what's going on on TV right now with all these with all this conversation about their interpretation of facts. And so does anybody ever have a conversation with you about that? You know, we do get calls that get asked questions about what does it mean for media to be able to put out facts. I talk about the importance of what I call, and we just talk about professional journalism. When technology allowed individuals to have access in a way that they never had before, so we didn't have to go through CBS as a gatekeeper to share information, to share knowledge, to share facts. We saw the rise of what we might consider amateur journalists or people who are putting out opinions, but they're doing it in a way that they represent themselves as if they are presenting facts, research, um, objective uh, positions. So we want to make sure that we're creating professional journalists who are talking about truth, responsibility, ethics, and empathy. That's the key that we need to be thinking about how to help individuals who are just overwhelmed with facts, but it's oftentimes opinion. That is true. Yeah, uh, it is. And it sure sounds like you have so many exciting things on your campus. Is there anything down the road you're looking at that you, that may be in the next couple of years that might be pretty exciting? Um, as we start thinking down the road, I'm looking to help our students have more meaningful experiences in the community earlier on. So we've started what we call exploratory internships, as well as career ready internships. So Dave, um, I started out in accounting. Okay, so I've also got degrees in real estate finance, 
And now I'm the Dean of the College of Communication, Information and Media at Ball State University. So it would have been nice when during my freshman year that maybe I could have some time going out into an experience or an industry I was interested in and try it on, see if it fits. And then I might be able to shape my studies in a way that are directly tied to what I think I'd like to do going forward. So we're gonna be bringing those exploratory internships on and then later implementing career ready internships. So I'm now stepping out, I've got some skills, I understand what it takes to be successful in my chosen career. And now how do I use those in the setting and get feedback from a professional that can help me even craft my next step to prepare me for that job interview, or perhaps prepare me to go on for a master's degree and know that I'm investing my time and money in something that's going to help make me successful. Wow. A lot of neat stuff happening at Ball State for sure, especially at your college. Yes. Um, Well, let's talk about you for a minute. Can you talk about yourself and the, the path that led you to become the dean of the college? Well, um, as I mentioned, I've had a pretty much a nonlinear path starting out as an accounting major when I first went to college back in 1981. And Dave, I lasted a year and nine weeks and realized that I didn't know why I was in college. I didn't know what I was doing. And I literally drove and dropped out of college on my way to take a statistics test. I am very proud that I can now teach that class. So I think there's some some, uh, irony there in that path. I eventually went back to school. And as I said, I got degrees in rhetoric, real estate finance and marketing, and later went on and got my PhD in organizational communication. But when you think about becoming a Dean, we oftentimes think, well, you become an assistant professor, then you become an associate professor. And then about the time you become full, you become the chair. And at some point then you might become an associate Dean, a Dean, associate vice That's kind of what I did, yeah. Yes. Um, I didn't do that. So <laughs> people told me I was a little crazy. I um, was just became an associate professor with tenure and was invited to become an associate vice provost in the provost's office. And I was told, don't do this. You'll never get to full professor. Uh, you won't have the authority. But by working in that position, I learned how things operate across the campus. You know, what does it mean for housing to have different enrollment numbers or deadlines in terms of how we sign up students for classes? What does it mean in terms of a budget model? What is lap salary dollars and what can you do with those? What is student success and the relationship that you can have with student affairs and how can you tie that back to your classroom experience? So I was in that position for about four years and eventually stepped back to a professor to finish some of the research that I had been working on, then later was recruited to be an associate dean at another university. And people would say, well, you took a step back. I actually felt that it was a step forward because I could take all the knowledge I had at the broad university level and really focus it into success for that college. Um, I became an executive director at the National Communication Association. That's our professional organization. And then missed being in the academy, so came back as a dean. So when we think about becoming a dean or moving into leadership in higher ed, I would really want to encourage people to not presume that you have to follow that linear path. In fact, you may have somebody who's sitting in a position for 10, 15 years 
that you think, well, I can't get any further because I have to have that position to go forward. You don't. There are a lot of other opportunities out there that you can take advantage of. You know, Paige, that's that's an excellent point because I have talked to um, a, f- a few college or university presidents that did not follow any of the traditional path. And you start thinking they have a they have a little bit of different viewpoint of stuff and it actually seems to have helped their campus pretty well. So I think that's a great point. Yeah, thank you. I, I think it's important for you to have an understanding of the academic side of the campus as well as the operational or business side. I tell my faculty all the time, I don't want them spending their time on running a budget or meeting policies. That's my job. My job is to clear a path so that they can be in the classroom, they can do their scholarship and creative work, they can do the service that's important to that position. Um, And as we see universities becoming more complex every day and the legislation environment that we're working in becoming more robust, it's really a challenge to think about how do faculty participate in governance of a university at the same time recognizing the level of complexity that participation requires. So I work very hard with my faculty and with the university to balance those expectations and opportunities so that they're focused on doing what they do best. Oh, good. Um, What's been the proudest moments for you so far at Ball State? Um, You know, there's funny, I have a drawer over here uh, that I could pull out that every time I get a note from a student or a faculty member uh, that said, you made a difference, that is really those proudest moments. And I tell students all the time, you may not realize how much it means just to send a note to a faculty member that says, you made a difference in my life. Um, And when you're having a bad day, uh, you may have the same drawer day, You know, I'll open the drawer and I'll read it and I'll remind myself of why we do the things we do and the fact that we can do it. Even when things seem difficult, we can do this. Um, One of the, as a dean, one of my proudest moments, there's two I'll share, was when I went to our fall assembly with our faculty and was able to tell them that we had been able to address internal compression within one standard deviation within the units. We had a number of faculty who had experienced compression. It was significant. And to be able to go back and say, because of the work we did together, we have now addressed that issues for your colleagues and you have made this happen for your colleagues. And then um, the second one was overwhelming. I was just awarded uh, and recognized as outstanding administrator at Ball State University for 2022. Wow. You know, and many people know that oftentimes there's an antagonistic relationship between deans and faculty. And the fact that my faculty and other um, vice presidents and individuals across the campus put me forward and supported me in this, that to me was incredibly touching and also uh, a little bit scary to think about now I need to live up to that going forward. (laughs) I need to make sure I keep doing those things. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm very impressed because prior to becoming a dean and associate dean, when you're, when your faculty compression is always an issue. That's I, I'm, a, I'm excited that 
you saw that as a huge issue. And and truly, I think of anything what what a dean can do. That's that's a big one for sure. So so kudos to you. Thank you. Um, one thing I will mention is I know that many deans and individuals are uh, discussing is budget issues. That's a, a real important consideration right now, particularly as we're seeing state funding declining, um, grants uh, expenses climbing. Uh, we're looking at shifting enrollments and shifting demographics in terms of our enrollments. Um, we are moved to an incentive-based budget about, uh, well, when I first got here, so it's been about four years ago. <clears throat> and I appreciate that our university chose an incentive-based budget as opposed to an RCM. And it's different in terms of, we believe that a university needs every college. We need the College of Fine Arts as much as the College of Communication of Information and Media or the Miller College of Business. That's part of our mission as an educational institution. And we know that some colleges cannot afford to uh, uh, pay their own way. So in our incentive-based budget model, we look at what we need to provide a college to be able to contribute to the entire university community. The incentive-based portion is what allowed us to deal with the compression because working with our faculty on class sizes, could you put one or two more students in a class and not jeopardize student learning or the mental health of our faculty? Could we look at how we're, uh, we did a curriculum map to see where we were meeting our student learning outcomes and were we duplicating covering those student learning outcomes in terms of our curriculum so we could maybe streamline some of our courses? That allowed us to reduce our reliance on adjuncts, overloads, and that freed up dollars that then the faculty and I discussed and they said, we want to put this towards our compression. Interesting. Well, well, what's been some of the biggest lessons you have learned as an academic leader? Um, boy, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of some of the good lessons uh, that which they have exist. My, my one lesson I would say as an academic leader is that you can never not be that title uh, on campus. You are always the dean. And so as you move into leadership, that can be a challenge for individuals. And I've heard this from others, right? You know, the relationships that you might have with your colleagues as you move into leadership, that's gonna shift. Um, they're always going to wonder if you're talking from a position that you have some information or knowledge that they don't have. Yeah. So they start reading into, it's like, it's like when you were a um, faculty member and you had papers turned in and you could see as you're walking down the hall, students would try and catch your eye to see if you did well on the paper or not. That's a similar type of experience you have when you move into leadership. Yeah, that's a good analogy, actually. Um, do you have any advice for new college deans? One of the things I would really recommend, and I, I, I'm getting to I, the concept of listening tour, I think is a little bit overwhelmed. You know, I'm going to go on a listening tour. I do think it's important that you talk with your faculty and individuals across the campus and ask them what is important about what they're doing and what do they need to be able to be successful. And when you're talking to operational units or divisions or support units, asking them, what is the thing you would want faculty to know 
And then taking that information and sharing it across the different groups, I think that's a really important step. And that's a little bit different than a listening tour. A listening tour to me is you're you know, gathering up thoughts and ideas. The importance of putting things in relationship to each other and then telling each of the, the components that you are doing this. For example, um, one of the things that we found as we were talking to our student affairs and our multicultural center was how difficult it is for students to come in the first day of class and have the wrong pronoun being used. And how helpful would it be if faculty could reach out to students before the first day and just ask them what their pronoun preferences were. So I shared this tip request with the faculty and they did this and got messages back from students about how grateful they were that they had reached out. And the faculty said, I didn't even know that this was something I could do to better improve my students and my relationship with them. So then taking that information, I shared it back with Student Affairs and the Multicultural Center so that they knew they made a difference. Their information, the work that they're doing is having an impact in the classroom and the faculty appreciate it. So not just a listening tour, but putting ideas and people and units in relationship with each other so that they can appreciate and have gratitude for the work and support we all provide. Great. Um, what do you think are the major challenges that colleges will face over the next five to 10 years? If you, um, if you have that crystal ball in front of you. Yeah, of I'm sitting here thinking about it. Um, you know, we talk, Thomas Kuhn talks about uh, paradigmatic shifts when things completely change, um, when we change from superstition and witchcraft to scientific knowledge, we are probably facing a paradigmatic change in higher education. Um, there's a book called The Great Upheaval, and it talks about things that are happening in terms of enrollments, changing demographics, different groups entering the educational market. Universities, uh, community colleges, uh, universities, uh, colleges used to be the bastion of education. And now we're seeing organizations like Google and Amazon are entering into that area. We're talking about non-degree um, non credentialing. So badges, things that are not about your educational attainment but perhaps a badge that demonstrates a skill set. All of that is really going to change how we think about what the job of the university is. I still believe that a university should prepare individuals to be good citizens, right? That means being successful in a career, but it also means having the skill sets to think through ideas evaluate the validity and reliability of a claim that's being put out there, to learn how to explore, to learn how to fail, to learn how to take one idea and put it into relationship with another in a way that's never been done before. Badges and non-degree credentials are oftentimes geared at what we might call simple problems, right? They don't have a level of complexity to them. You do A, B will happen, and it will always happen that way. We need individuals who can solve wicked problems, 
problems that are layered, nuanced, that you may think that you've addressed all of the root elements, but they're going to pop up again. And I see universities as providing educational moments that prepare students to address wicked problems. So that's going to take some challenge for us because we're going to need to rethink from credit hours and time in a seat to competencies. I really believe that we are going to be seeing more move towards a competency-based model and more fluidity perhaps in how we think about classes. And so maybe it's two weeks in this class and then two weeks in another class and then a two week seminar where you're putting all of that information together. The other thing I think we'll see because of the uh, pop up in these non-degree credentials is what are we going to do in terms of educational attainment that allows individuals who may have chosen to do a non-degree certificate or badge when they want to create a degree or they want to progress in their career in a way that's going to require perhaps that wicked problem, that creative thinking, what do we do to provide an on-ramp that they can be part of our university system as well? You know, that's really a good point. I know that when you look at the workforce and, and of course, when you're dealing with badges and certificates, the non-degrees, mm -hmm. people need them for work and they get those. But the only, the issue, because I saw this at one time in my career path was all of a sudden you need a degree to move up and you don't have one. You may have 30 different badges you have. And so how do you how do you how do you transition those into it? And I'm glad, you know, when you start that conversation, it's it sounds like people talk about this or that. They don't seem to blend them together at all. So that's a great point. Well, as you're probably familiar with, there's something called prior learning assessment right. that many universities do where they say we take your experiences and we will assess the learning. It could be you put together a portfolio. It could be you take an exam, and then you're given recognition for the learning that you've had. If you go through the non-degree uh, non badges or certificates, they could serve as a form of prior learning assessment that is then evaluated by an individual at a university to say where are the alignments in terms of our curricular experience that can then be applied towards a degree and a credential at that point as well. Um, I think we're going to be much more fluid. And uh, you know, the big word during COVID was it agile. Let's be agile. How fast can we move and pivot? I think we're going to need to think about how can we be more agile and responsive to multi multi-modalities of education, also to multiple paths and to paths that will not look as linear. And Dave, I think I'm very well prepared for that given the fact that my path wasn't linear either. That's right. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, what's been learned about online education since the pandemic, and how do you see this platform evolving for both faculty and students? One of the things that, there's several items that I think we've learned about the online platform. One is for faculty, they've started to understand what they can do in that platform and how much energy it really does take to do it. And I think that's been something they were a little reticent to step step into. But now because of COVID, because they've been engaged in it, they have a better understanding of that I can be online. Here's what the prep work will take to be able to do this. And here's the challenges that I'll face. Uh, challenges, of course, with um, access in terms of having internet access available for our students. 
challenges in terms of monitoring a screen to make sure that you can see those nonverbals to understand if students are getting what you're talking about or not getting what you're talking about. Creation of work groups that are perhaps um, inspirational uh, in a virtual environment has been a challenge for us as well. What I think we're going to see more is intentional use of a hybrid or online platform. There are moments when we want to be with each other, to be able to do hands-on manipulation, use equipment, to actually see somebody struggle with something or to lean over and show them how something's done. At the same time, there are moments when we may be conveying brief bits of information, right? We're not really engaged. And an online platform can be very effective at doing that, particularly if we get away from the 50-minute talking heads. Yeah. You know, about 12 minute, 12 to 16-minute package of information is about the best we want in terms of delivering it through the online platform. So I believe we are going to see a much more fluid environment. It's going to be more intentional in terms of where we use which modality. And we're going to be able to actually serve some of our students better, particularly those who maybe have a situation emerge. We had a student who was in the hospital for treatments of cancer. And because we could do the online modality, they were able to continue to be part of the class experience in a way that wouldn't have happened before. Um, I will also share at another university, I did a class where we brought together people from around the US, three different locations, and then two conditions overseas for a live conversation in a virtual environment. We then broke them out in work groups. So they were able to work with individuals from different backgrounds, different countries on projects in a way that we couldn't have done in a face-to-face -face environment. So I really believe that we're going to, again, see that sort of paradigmatic shift and how we think about our online communities. You know, I think the other thing when you talk about students is there's an expectation now from students that they have that what you're going to do is going to be fluid. They're not, I, I don't think they're all coming back thinking we're going back to the traditional roles as a student faculty. Yeah. And then we're going to need to have conversations about that, just as when we saw email. Um, I'm old enough to remember when email took off and texting. We saw students saying, you know, faculty don't get back to me. Well, they were expecting faculty to reply in an hour right. and faculty's response time was 24 to 48 hours. We're going to need to have very explicit conversations about those conditions for an online modality and when and how that will be used up front at the beginning. It should be part of your syllabus when you talk about how, how to turn in papers, um, when things are due, what the format is, what is our approach to an online modality in this class going to be? And Dave, also their expectation is going to be not that students come back and expect it, but when they graduate, there's going to be an expectation that they know how and when to use an online modality. So for our college, that's an area that we're really focused on layering into our students' experience. Not just you're taking a class in a persuasive theory, but you're also going to be learning the NACE competencies that are skills that employers are looking for. And one of them is digital literacy. So we mm -hmm. need to help our students while they're engaged in a class, develop digital literacy as they're working in teams across, the, um, across different modalities. 
I will, and I do want to just make a point here. We talk about these students as being digital natives. They are, but that doesn't mean that they have, they, they're digitally literate. And I think that's really important. When I talk to a student about how to use Zoom or different components on an online platform or even PowerPoint, I am surprised that they have a very narrow range of understanding. And it's because they've only used it to the point that solves their simple problem, right? How do we help them understand how to use technology to solve wicked problems? We're gonna to have to take them out of their comfort zone. Right. Um, here's my next question. This has to do with non-traditional students. So in the past, we've kind of noticed that sometimes they struggle more than traditional students at large universities. What can be done to serve this specific student population better? Well, one of the things, as you may be aware, is we're seeing the changing demographics of our students. So what was once a non-traditional student is quickly <laughs> becoming less of a non-traditional student. You know, that's really a good point. <laughs> right. So we're probably going to have to think about different terms. And of course, we don't want to use the term older student or, but when we did the, we becoming a majority of minorities, if you will, we have smaller groups that are very different coming into the university setting. We don't all look the same. We don't all come from the same backgrounds. We don't all have the same needs. So as we think about how we serve those traditionally non-traditional students, that's actually what we're going to have to do to serve every one of our students going forward. Um, so I think it's going to be easier for non-traditional students because universities recognize now that they have to be more agile. They have to provide alternative platforms. They have to provide a on-ramp, off-ramp uh, for degrees so individuals can stop out and start back up without any um, uh, penalty, if you will, and part of that process. So things like five-week courses, so rather than taking you know, five courses over 16 weeks, can we do two courses in five weeks and two courses in the next five weeks? That allows individuals to be able to care for family members, to work, uh, or perhaps they want to explore something else. Maybe they want to go off and do an incredible video project in LA or do something that's an immersive learning experience or an internship. Those type of different organizational structures for offering courses are going to be helpful for all of our students going forward. Well, what suggestions do you have to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion at colleges? Well, I think we're going to see that happening because of the changing demographics in the United States. The growing Latinx community and Hispanic community is going up, so we'll be seeing that. I think what we also need to do though, is make sure that we're creating inclusive environments uh, for those students or the faculty who are coming in. And that's really taking some reflection and honesty to have those conversations. In our college, we've actually created a toolkit for our faculty, that's our inclusive excellence toolkit that offers readings by diverse authors so that when students come into a classroom, they're reading authors that may look like them, sound like them, come from a similar background. We're including uh, information on how you can create a syllabus that reflects an inclusive environment. So those types of things are going to be very, very important. 
We also need to think about how we create a pipeline so that we have individuals who are professors, staff, deans, presidents that represent the diversity that's mm. part of our country. Um, and what is it that we're doing that may <coughs> unintentionally exclude them from those possibilities? A linear tra uh, career trajectory may be one of those things that inadvertently shuts them out of opportunities. Um, one of the things that we've done very intentionally in the college and at our university is not tying job minimum requirements to a, a title, but rather to a skill or knowledge set. So rather than saying, must have served five years as a chair, we would say something along the lines of five years of demonstrated leadership experience. So that provides an alternative path for an individual to demonstrate their skill sets and to be able to move up in an organization or in their career. That's, a, that's an interesting way of doing it. Um, here's another question that has to do about our students, and that deals with the mental health. You know, a lot of universities right now are focusing their attention on the mental health of their students. So do you have any suggestions of what can be done on campuses? You know, Dave, every campus is hurting right now for mental health professionals. And the higher rates are incredible, the um, unfilled position rates are incredibly high across the nation. And one of the things I'm very proud of our university is we've done a mental health first aid training for all of our faculty. So we do not expect, like I said, I don't expect that my faculty are running our budgets or running our operations. They have, should have input, they should have knowledge, they should have support. We have created this program so that faculty know how to engage with a student who is having an issue or maybe experiencing a moment of mental health instability. And then how do they refer them to somebody to be able to get them the support? So giving faculty the skills they need in that moment and not asking them to do more than they're trained or capable of doing and helping them get them to the right professionals. I'm very proud of that. We've seen that be very successful. And it's also helped with the mental health, health of our faculty. Our faculty have felt overwhelmed listening and hearing about students' experiences during COVID, um, as students are learning to be more upfront about their mental health issues, and they feel overwhelmed because faculty are here because they want to help students. If I'm listening to you talking about an abusive situation or um, suicidal thoughts, I become challenged in my own mental health when I can't help you. So the mental health first aid has really been a support that I think our university is leading the way in. Well, here's a fun question for you. If you have any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it? I would spend it on faculty development. Absolutely. You, you are absolutely faculty first, Dean. I love it. Well, my job, and I tell people all the time, is that my job is to support the faculty so that they support the students. That's what I do. And I wear the title Dean in service of our college and our university. This is not Paige that shows up, right? I'm the Dean. And if you need the title Dean there, I will do everything I can to be there because I know that means something to our faculty and to students, to administration at the university. 
If I can get some faculty professional development money so that they can learn how to infuse digital literacy into their classroom, then I have helped the students. I've helped the university. I was so very proud of our School of Journalism and Strategic Communication talking about all the things that we've done. We had some extra money because faculty weren't traveling as much. And what they did is they took those funds and sent about a third of their faculty to project management training so that they learned how to do project management. Now that, that is now being infused into the curriculum. So students are learning how to do project management. And that is helping with some of the concerns that we're hearing from students, faculty, and industry that our students don't know how to sequence activities to be able to meet deadlines. So by training the faculty, providing that professional development opportunity, we're actually benefiting the faculty, the students, our community partners, and industry. Yeah, I I always have, uh, over the years, I was a little frustrated with uh, as an administrator, you'd always hear people talk about students first and student centered. And of course, that's what that's what universities do. But oh, by the way, guess who does that work? Faculty. And so I just like how you how, how you sum that up in a nice sentence for us. So thank you. Well, I, let me share. I want to give credit to our associate dean, uh, Wei Dong, who just joined us. He was talking to our faculty and I charged him with um, providing a robust, integrated faculty and staff professional development program that uses all the resources that we have across our campus. And when he talked about this, he said, you know, the students are the heart of the university, but the faculty are the soul and lifeblood. Yeah, good point. Well, well, here's my last question. Okay. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would like to recommend to other academic leaders? Um, well, a number of them, because my background is actually organizational communication. So I read a lot of these, but I'll just mention two of them. Okay. Uh, the One of them is called First Break All the Rules by Buckham. It was out of a uh, Gallup poll that was done. And I read this book probably 25 years ago. And one of the lines that has really stuck with me is that don't spend too much time trying to put in what's not there. Spend your energy developing what is there. We live in a world that, in our culture, I'll stay in the US, that is really deficit driven. If you go into any bookstore, we have rows and rows of self-help books that tell you that you're not good enough and how you can become better. And the reality is nobody can be good at everything. What are the strengths, the talents that you see in individuals, and how can you help develop those strengths and those talents? And Dave, that doesn't mean that there aren't minimum qualifications, and you have to make sure that everybody's baselining on those. But how do you find the person who's going to be successful doing this task? Or how do you put together a team that's going to have the talents and the resources and the knowledge that's needed to accomplish and address a wicked problem. That to me is the goal of a good leader, is to find those people and to help them flourish based upon their talents and skills. Um, the other one I'll mention was a reading that was uh, shared by our president of our university, President Mearns, just this last year, among all of the leadership team, the cabinet, the deans, et cetera. And it's called Legacy, 
what the All Blacks of New Zealand, their rugby team, can teach about leadership. And for me, the takeaway from this was the phrase, be a good ancestor. Higher education, I mean, our, our college, you know, our college has been here since 1996. You know, universities are hundreds of years old. The reality is we hope that the work we do outlives us. And if we're doing that type of work, then we need to be a good ancestor to the people that are going to come after us. So we need to think about the long-term implications. We need to set up the people that are going to come after us for success. So I don't want anybody to come into our college after I leave and find out that I've hidden a deficit in the budget, right? Or that there was a policy that should have been addressed and we didn't take care of it. Be a good ancestor because that's your legacy that you're going to leave. Great. What a way to end the show. That's a that's a perfect way to do that. Uh, well, Paige, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Dave, thank you so much. And I want to thank you for giving a voice to individuals who serve as academic deans and also providing an opportunity for those individuals who would like to serve or improve being a dean to hear from others. This is an incredibly valuable initiative that you started, and I am deeply appreciative. Well, thank you so much. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.